Would you open your scriptures, if you have a Bible with you, to Acts chapter 2. This is a very well-known passage, Acts chapter 2, written by Luke, who was both a doctor and a historian. So from that perspective, he was a man that we can very well rely on. I want to draw your attention to the words of verse 11 at the end of that verse. After finishing off a great list of various countries where people had come from to Jerusalem for the feast, we have these words, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Why did Luke say it like that? Why didn't he just say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the story of Jesus? Or we hear them telling the gospel? Or we hear them telling about the works that Jesus did? No. He says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now you know that the first part of the book of Acts starts off by referring to Luke's gospel he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 1 in the first book O Theophilus we don't know who Theophilus was probably some Chinese man it's a that sort of name isn't it that was supposed to be bring a smile to people's faces I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now he's continuing the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach. In the first chapter there is the reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses. And this is not a command, for being witness is our identity. It's who we are. It's not our assignment. The Spirit of God came and transformed not only the disciples, but so many other people from around the world, transformed them by the power of his Holy Spirit to be his witnesses, to carry out his ministry in the world, And persecution was part of it. Because a witness is a martyr, and many of them were martyred. So it wasn't, I've packed my bags and I'm going to have a wonderful time journeying around the world. This could be human death that they faced. So in none of Paul's letters, for example, does he urge the churches to evangelise He knows that with the coming of the Spirit, they will do that. They will be witnesses to the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what does it say to us? Our ministry of mission is the gospel, the news of Christ's coming. It is not law. It's the overflow of God's gift. It is not a heavy burden of guilt. The work of the Holy Spirit in our church and in this church in particular envisages that evangelism will occur 
but not as a duty. It is never the task of the New Testament, and certainly not my task, to say, you better go out and witness. You better do this. That is law, and that is not part of the Gospel. So the question is not, how shall we motivate our churches that do not evangelise? The question is, why is evangelising not happening through the overflow of spiritual reality? We are witnesses. We are his people. And we overflow with whatever life there is within us. You bump a glass of water, what comes out of it? Water, because that's what's in it. So what is it that we bump with as we meet people during the week? The gospel that comes out of us. It is not programs, it is not sorting out we must do this or that or the other, but the worship of God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the aliveness of the Spirit as we move by faith, because he is the object of faith. But I need to ask you, what is your object? If you're a Christian this morning, it is my duty to ask us all, what is the object of our faith and interest? And sadly some Christians are so wrapped up in getting things, or doing things, or putting on a good impression, that it's a denial of what the Christian faith is about. If our object in life is not Christ and his gospel, We've missed the point. We are not coming forth with the ministry that he's entrusting to us. The grace that has been lavished on us has raised us up with Christ in resurrection. He has broken the wall of hostility between God and us, between various cultures. He's broken through the cultures that we have and they sadly can become the object of our faith. We can say, well I belong to this culture or that culture or I speak this language or that. But the point is that unless Christ is the preeminent one, we are into an object of idolatry. It is he alone who has given us access to the Father. The same grace that is at work within us, enabling us to overflow with gospel truth, so that in our everyday living, Monday through the week, our service to God never ceases to be dependent upon his action to us. Now we might say, well we're here this morning, we're worshipping. Alright, what are we going to do at this time tomorrow? Well, I've got an appointment, or I've got to do the washing, or I've got to drive here. But this time tomorrow we are worshipping. And what about the next day? We are worshipping. Everything that we do is worship or service to our God and Father. It's a 24-7 operation, and in that we are never off duty. 
and he is the object despite all the other things that we have to do he is the one object of our worship he indwells us he has restored the life of his people the spirit has come the Holy Spirit is here this morning he's with us and he is within us and we declare his name with great joy not with oh I suppose we'd better but great joy because he has come to us to renew us now if you're sitting here this morning or standing where I am for that matter if we're dull and perplexed if we think oh well yes I've heard this sort of stuff before the answer is not to go and visit the doctor for an injection the answer is to look to the Lord by faith and ask him seriously to renew us to restore us to grant us fresh insight into his truth to say hey God's spirit is within me he never leaves me I better get with it I don't feel too well I'm tired I'm weary I've got problems like the rest of us but it's by faith and I have my moments the same as anybody else we are human beings with all the frailties that human beings go through but we ask the Father to renew us to galvanise us into action his action now we read this morning an interesting chapter which you've read before and it's all leading up to this the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and many of the people there were uneducated unimportant there were those who come from various places around the world now Luke does not say that there were people there from China there may have been I don't know or Malaysia or Singapore or what other, other country you like to think of but this was the coming of the spirit to the world of that day with the truth of the gospel in languages that they could understand in their own languages there was no need of an interpreter they heard in their own mother tongue the story of Jesus and it was a reversal of Babel you remember the story of Babel which can be termed Babel that Babel of voices where God confused the languages well Pentecost is a reversal of that and then it was followed by Peter's sermon <coughs> now all of this is leading to answer the question as to why Luke says in verse 11 of chapter 2 he says both Jews and proselytes Cretans and Arabians we hear them telling in our own tongues what do we hear them telling? the mighty works of God and I want to illustrate that 
from other passages of scripture as to why he used that sort of expression. Back in Psalm 71, now the scriptures were originally written in, in Hebrew or Aramaic, but there was a version written in Greek, translated into Greek, called the Septuagint, because there were 70 scholars. So the word comes from that 70. And it particularly comes out in that translation. But Psalm 71 and verse 19, the psalmist says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, that's the word, you who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Well, there's no one like him. He has done great things. God doesn't fiddle around pushing bits and pieces of plastic here or there. He's not playing a game. He does great things. When you think of our universe and they keep on discovering more and more of it, now they're wanting to photograph the black holes. They better be careful they don't get sucked into it. The great things, where did all this come from? The universe is God's creation. And then in Job, Job chapter 37 has a fascinating expression that can help us in this. Job 37, and you remember his story? Well, I hope you do. You remember that in chapter 1, and I often make the point <coughs> that Job never read the first chapter of his book. He did not know that Satan had gone into the courts of God and asked permission to work Job over so that he would lose everything except a nagging wife because her advice to him, if you remember, which is written in chapter 2, Job, why don't you curse God and die? She couldn't handle him any longer. In chapter 37 we read the so-called advice of one of his friends, Elihu. But in these words he proclaims God's majesty. Now listen to what he says, the first five verses. He says to Job, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. So he's telling Job he better listen to God. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and he's lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. God's voice roars, he says. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. Now here's the point. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. That's the word. Elihu is saying to Job, God does great things. How do you say that to a man who's lost all his children and all his flocks and herds? And only his wife was left. God does great things. 
if we get sick or go into a difficult time, we think, oh, God's let me down or oh, I'm miserable or what's happened? Well, this is a good verse to read. In the midst of our problems, God does great things, not minuscule aspects. And then getting back to Luke, because it was Luke that wrote the book of Acts. In chapter 1 and verse 49, Luke also alludes to this whole situation of God's greatness. Listen to how he writes this. Now he writes it from the words of a woman, a woman named Mary. And it is referred to as the Magnificent. It is Mary's song of praise. She starts off by saying, or by singing, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. That's a good way to start prayer, isn't it? If you're battling to know how to pray, then turn to that and read aloud what Mary has said. But in verse 49... Listen to what she says, what she sings. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He's not only mighty, but he is holy. I always find it difficult to explain what holiness is. Theologians like to argue about it. Did you know that you are a holy person? If you're a Christian this morning, if your faith is in Christ, you are holy because God has made you holy and also you are a saint. It's the same word. So if you, after the service, will want to refer to me as St. John, uh, that's quite alright. And here at the front we've got St. Chin and we've got a number of other saints. You are a holy person because God has done that through the death and resurrection of his son. But Luke doesn't just stop there. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel, he tells us a story. It's the story where Jesus healed the boy with epilepsy. And the word we're after is in Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. The boy is described as having an unclean spirit or epilepsy, it doesn't matter which which you think of. Jesus heals him and Luke finishes the story and all were astonished at what? That he healed the boy? No, that's not what he says. All were astonished at the majesty of God. The majesty of God, that's the word. The greatness, the holiness, the majesty of God. We don't worship some puny individual. He is majestic. Now there's another reference which is quite an interesting one. And I wondered at first why Luke used this word. In chapter 19 of the book of Acts, he really digs the knife in to us. 
Luke 19 is Paul's ministry at Ephesus and there was a riot a riot concerning one of the seven wonders of the ancient world Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis this grotesque individual which was covered with female breasts and people would go there and indulge in prostitution and idolatry and they would sell little statues of Diana to people who visited now you know that that happens today you go to a visiting country and you can buy little statues of all sorts of things of that visiting country well this is an illustration of it they are made of silver and they are worth a fair bit the concern was that Paul preaching the gospel upset their trade and what affected it? it affected their finance it affected their wallets and purses that's what upset them not that Diana wasn't popular no, no, no what upset them was the fact that their trade of selling these little statues meant that they weren't making sufficient money now, how does Paul, how does uh, Luke use this? in Acts 19 and verse 27 he describes Artemis, Diana of the Ephesians, the great statue, the place of pagan worship, utterly pagan worship. Luke writes there is, there is danger, not only, or in this, writes about this man who is complaining. He says there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. He whom, she whom all Asia and the world worship, deposed from her magnificence. That's the word, it's the same word that Luke uses, that God is magnificent. Here this pagan man is described by Luke as saying that the goddess is magnificent. See, this is the idolatry that we face today in our 21st century. People look at what's happening in sport, in business, in other countries, and we think, oh, wow, that's magnificent, that's wonderful. And our team's going to win. Our cricket team, our football team, our netball team. Now we've got women's football. They're going to win. That's what we put our priorities into. Magnificent. It's idolatry. That's what Paul and Luke are both getting at. The last reference is not by Luke or by Paul. The last reference I have for you is by Peter. And he uses the same word. He and Luke must have had a conversation to work this one out. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. He's talking about the glory of Christ. And he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's writing to people who were dispersed 
to Christians who were suffering persecution and then he says but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty that's the word Peter says to these people we were eyewitnesses not just of Christ but of his majesty how was he majestic how was Jesus Christ majestic in his transfiguration but particularly in the cross that is his coronation that is where the majesty along with the blood and the suffering is poured out that is his most majestic and he proved the majesty of the cross by the resurrection that was the message that the early church took to the ancient world my friends that's the only message that we have we have no other message but Christ and him crucified let's thank him for that our father there are so many claimants for our time our energy and our efforts but may we realise freshly this morning the majestic Christ has come and he comes to us this morning and reminds us that he has made us his saints his holy ones his people that we are here for a purpose and may we live out that purpose for his glory and for the glory of his continuing name Amen